Hello, it's Manveen, bringing you an episode from a new podcast series from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet initiative, Planet Hope. In this series, Adam Vaughan, the environment editor for The Times, asks why our planet is changing so rapidly and meets leading experts from around the world who are trying to turn the tide. Through its Perpetual Planet initiative, Rolex supports individuals and organisations who go above and beyond to safeguard and preserve our planet for the next generation. Volcanoes. Without them, we almost certainly would not be living in the same world we know today. Gaseous emissions from volcanic vents over hundreds of millions of years formed the Earth's earliest oceans and atmosphere, supplying the ingredients that were vital in evolving and sustaining life. And their countless eruptions of lava moulded more than 80% of the Earth's surface into mountains, plateaus and plains, which over time weathered into beautiful landscapes and formed fertile soils. But despite volcanoes giving us one of our greatest gifts of life, they've in equal measure caused cataclysmic devastation and ruin in their wake. Today, there are 1,500 active volcanoes scattered around the Earth, putting approximately 500 million people living in volcanic zones at extreme risk of their wrath. In 2022, we saw 85,000 people fall victim to the volcanic eruption at Hunga Tonga Hunga Harpai. And this isn't the only example. In fact, on average, it's reported that 1,000 people die every year from volcanic activity. In the face of one of the world's most deadly and erratic giants, it's easy to feel helpless at their mercy. But there is hope, with innovative individuals making it their life's work to help protect those who live in the shadows of active volcanoes. It's almost like you're breathalyzing the volcano, really, to try and figure out, has it had too much to drink? But maybe to push that a little bit further, it's not just about working out has it had too much to drink, i.e. what is the gas composition of its breath, it's also trying to work out its breathing patterns, because volcanoes, how they breathe, is very important to work out, for example, has a volcano held its breath for too long? I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Today we hear from the man who's using technology to help predict future volcanic eruptions. In this episode, we're connecting to Sydney, Australia. Famous for its Harbour Bridge, distinctive sound-like opera house and iconic Bondo Beach. It's no wonder that more than 58,000 Brits move to Sydney each year. And our guest today, from the sounds of things, is pretty pleased with his decision to migrate. Hello, I'm Andrew McGonigal. I'm a Rolex laureate and I'm interested in developing technologies that can solve problems, particularly in the context of volcanology. What's the weather like over there today? The weather is good. There's been a real kick of heat towards the end of the summer, um, which has been wonderful. And now we're back to more standard temperatures, so I, 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 can't, I can't really complain in terms of weather. Andrew may live in sunny Australia, but his home is approximately 17,000 kilometres away in Edinburgh, Scotland, a city of seven hills formed by ancient volcanoes, which is exactly where his fascination for volcanology began. And now, from the inspiration of his childhood geology to decades of scientific exploration studying volcanoes around the world, Andrew has become one of the most prolific volcanologists in history, 
So I started out in physics, and in some ways, if you take me apart, I'm probably really a physicist. Uh, so I guess I've always had twin passions. I've been interested in how the world works from a fundamental point of view, which, which obviously physics addresses. I'm interested in technology as well, and then I'm interested in, in, the, in the natural environment, which is around us as well. And, and what I've been doing has been a nice way of linking all of these disparate interests together. Researchers have sought ways to predict eruptions for more than a century, a task that sometimes required them to get dangerously close to the volcanoes. But against the odds, and through many years of trial and error, Andrew successfully developed technology to forecast imminent danger from volcanic eruptions. And his technological advancements continue to get better and better each year. But before he tells us more about his innovations, I asked what level of risk volcanoes still pose in this day and age? Yeah, it's still considerable. I mean, overall, not, not as vast as the risk that, for example, we've seen posed through recent catastrophic earthquake incidents, but still significant, still something that we need to be very mindful of in terms of the world that we live in. So, so yeah, still, still a highly significant risk. We tend to not think of it very much because, in a sense, we're not, we're not living on the precipice of one of these things. At least, you know, most of the listeners won't be. Um, but there's plenty of other people in other parts of the world who who live right next to very active volcanoes. Where do, where do they sort of sit to, to provide a bit of context? Where do they sit in like the pantheon of kind of natural disasters for human and economic damage? Mm. Earthquakes would certainly be much higher up. But then, of course, as things go further forward and as climate change becomes more of an issue, that, you know, currently sort of baseline level of risk attached to that has the potential to eclipse absolutely everything in terms of the, the economic cost that could be attached to that. Just in terms of the risk from volcanoes, I mean, how, it might seem obvious, but, but how is that sort of elevated in low and middle income countries where, you know, many of them are located? Mm. There may be acute issues in terms of where, where buildings can take place. So in those contexts, people might end up building in areas where in, in other parts of the world, building wouldn't happen. There may also be more limited financial resource in terms of infrastructure, in terms of monitoring. So I suppose there'd be a coalescence of issues in terms of physical location where people live, and then also in terms of the preparedness of those states to respond to these incidents when they when they do take place. So planning or zoning laws might mean that pe- more people are at risk than they would be perhaps in a perhaps higher income country. Are there any sort of striking statistics in terms of that level of risk? Well, I mean, one is that in the last 100 years or so, about 100,000 people have died as a consequence of volcanism. So, you know, it's certainly enough for us to take seriously going forwards. And in terms of that, you know, you talked today of 100,000 people dying over the last century or so and i mean that's obviously a huge human toll i just wondered mm. they can cause great destruction to property and to mm. the local ecology presumably as well i just wondered have you have you had much experience of that firsthand mm. yes and i think you know volcanoes are funny things because you know for example an earthquake there's 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 literally nothing to like about an earthquake it's it generates this this um schism within the earth which just causes destruction it leaves nothing behind which you know to like if you like whereas a volcano leaves this topographical form which can actually be quite beautiful it can it can provide nutrients in the soil which can you know be the source of vineyards and 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 create very very fertile places for people to perform ag- agriculture 
which can be the draw for people to end up living near there. So yeah, I've seen a number of volcanic eruptions. Some of them have, have been very painful and devastating for people living in that area. One that springs to mind was a number of years ago, we were in, in Hawaii and actually I was there to do a research project, actually funded by Rolex, but a research project looking at ultraviolet light and the impact of that on human beings and how it might vary in different ecosystems. Anyway, when we were there, the volcano erupted. It had started erupting before we arrived, but we hadn't really gone there to, to study the volcanology of the island. And while we were there, we went out in a boat to observe from the water the lavas as they met the sea. And we were still, the boat was stationed some distance off the, um, off the coastline. And I put my hand in the water and the water was like bath water because of the sheer thermal energy from the lava. And notwithstanding the, the great problems that caused because of the communities that were flooded in the lava and the people that had to relocate, that was a very gripping example to me of the reality of this. Because I think even, you know, when you've been used to being on volcanoes mm -hmm. and talking about being on volcanoes and teaching about being on volcanoes, when you see the real thing, it takes you aback. It's quite a visceral example of the power, I guess. That's right. Another example of a place that we've always liked to go to is Stromboli in southern Italy, which erupts every 10 minutes or so, and it's like a natural fireworks show. Again, that's a, that's a slightly tamer example. But still, when you, when you hear the noises and you see what happens, there's something otherworldly about it, which is mm. you see things and you smell things and you hear things which you just wouldn't hear in any other context. What was the volcano in Hawaii? Is it Mauna Loa? Or? The eruption itself was from part of the rift system that was related to, to Kilauea vol volcano. I've, I always think of Hawaii because covering climate change a lot. I always think of it as the uh, for the CO2 record that they keep there, obviously, from the atmosphere. That's right. And it's absolutely fascinating because one of the things we did while we were there was we went up to the top and we went to Mauna Loa Observatory and of course, that observatory is so important because it's where that long-term carbon dioxide data set was acquired, which you're talking about by Keeling. So the Keeling curve came from there, whereby we can see the increase in carbon dioxide levels since the Industrial Revolution. So that's kind of what we were there to study. But meanwhile, down <laughs> down in the valley, if you like, this, this volcano is kicking off. Andrew, if you could cast your mind back a bit now, I suppose I want to ask where your fascination for volcanoes came from. I was very fortunate in that I grew up in Edinburgh in Scotland and I grew up with a mixture of observing this spectacular scenery in the Scottish Highlands and also in, in Edinburgh, as you, as you may well know, Edinburgh is a city built on seven hills, all of which are volcanic in some way or another. So I grew up as a kid running around Arthur's Seat um, with the School Cross Country Running Club. Oh God, and, I've, and I've, I've run up there as well. That's not an easy hill to run up. <laughs> well, you survived as well. You know, these sites were so important within the development of modern geology with, you know, people like Hutton and all these other characters. And you know, to, to some extent, modern geology came from these people as they made observations on places like that. So that was sort of part of my early ingestion of science, passively or actively. And then attached to that, again, in Edinburgh, Edinburgh was this incredible intellectual place in terms of the Enlightenment. And then thereafter, there were incredible scientists like, obviously, James Clark Maxwell. So within this whole environment, I developed this kind of twin passion of physics and understanding the world from a fundamental point of view, but also the spectacular and sheer beauty of nature. And I remember actually at school doing an art project and I'd chosen to do rocks. And, and I remember sitting, I must have been about 14 years old, 
sketching Salisbury crags on the, on the side of Arthur's seat. And I had this almost existential moment when I was just blown away by, you know, the absolute awe and grandeur of these rocks that are millions of years old. And I don't even think at that point, I realized this is a volcanic sill. I think that's been in my ether for quite some time. And I was fortunate enough to find a pathway of putting those two things together. What was the sort of moment where you sort of jumped from physics to volcanoes? What what triggered that? So I did physics all the way through in terms of my education. I did undergrad in theoretical physics, and then I did a doctorate in developing lasers for pollution monitoring in the atmosphere. And that had been very useful in terms of developing my skill set. But I really wanted to do something in, in the wild. I wanted to take this technology or some sort of analogous technology and apply it in the wild. Actually, I'd got to the point, I'd been looking around at jobs and nothing had really clicked. And I'd got to the point where I thought, nah, I'm, I'm done. Science isn't going to happen. I'll go and you know, do, some, do something else. And I'm sure that would have been wonderful. But then I came across uh, an article by Clive Oppenheimer in Cambridge University. I just sent Clive a speculative email saying, here I am, here's my CV. Have you got anything coming up? He emailed back within about 10 minutes to say, uh, I've just found out we've got a position funded. Come through, let's let's have a chat. So we had a chat, one thing led to the other. I got hired by him and then I was able, and, and look, huge shout out to him and thank you, Clive, much appreciated. Uh, he had the breadth of mind, I think, to see that someone coming in from a very different background might be able to pitch in and you know do something useful in this area. So yeah, I was probably within days of doing something completely different, but thanks to Clive, we're having this conversation. Nice. So glad, glad you sent that email. Uh, so, I mean, how much do we really understand, Andrew, about volcanoes and predicting their eruptions? As technology has advanced, as as the data that we have on volcanic behaviour has advanced exponentially over, over the last few years, our understanding has, has advanced exponentially as well. One of the challenges is that maybe a little bit like a human patient presenting with a disease, that no two volcanoes are identical. And therefore, their presentations in advance of the outbreak of the disease, i.e. the eruption, might be rather different. And indeed, it's possible for some volcanoes to do maybe slightly different things in advance of different eruptions. So the challenge really is to try and gather as much data as possible in order to try and really nail down what does this volcano do before you know, before something might happen. And another challenge is that volcanic eruptions, and this is in a sense a good thing, are in a sense relatively rare. And so it's not like, you know, we've observed millions and millions of these things as we would have done, for example, in presentation of particular disease in in human beings. So it's kind of a catch-22. We want more eruptions so that we can get more of an idea how it happens but we don't want more eruptions because we don't want more eruptions that's it's really interesting as a sort of layman i i i suppose i hadn't really realized that even though there's some volcanoes that'll be really well studied because they're near to where people live that you can't necessarily generalize from that model what will happen to other volcanoes i hadn't really thought about that do you remember the first time you kind of were out in the field and were you using mm some kit to better monitor volcanoes i understand two of the sort of key ways are sort of around mm. seismicity and around the gases that they release mm-hmm. but do, do you want to talk us through your sort of first experience of that of getting out and testing stuff in the wild sure so just riffing on what you've just said volcanoes 
do things before they erupt. They're not very subtle, not like earthquakes that, you know, just build up pressure and then and then go. On volcanoes, things happen. Uh, the, the ground might inflate um, as magma batches move underground. That could be observed, for example, from satellites. Things might get hotter. Again, as hot magmas move closer to the surface, that could be observed using thermal cameras. All of this underground movement, whether it's magmas or gases or some combination of the two, will generate seismicity earthquakes, which, as you mentioned, we can measure as well. And then lastly, the gases themselves, which is what I've been mostly involved in. It's almost like you're breathalyzing the volcano, really, to try and figure out, has it had too much to drink? You know, maybe to follow that example. But maybe to push that a little bit further, it's not just about working out, has it had too much to drink, i.e. what is the gas composition of its, of its breath? It's also trying to work out its breathing patterns because volcanoes, how they breathe is very important to work out. For example, has a volcano held its breath for too long? So it's not just about the composition and the mix of the gases. It's very much about the time as well is, is a key element you're saying, right? That's right, exactly. And look, going back to what you originally asked, and forgive me for being a bit circuitous. Yeah, the first, the first time I worked on a volcano... Look, I think I have always had and, and still maintain this, this, this sense of wonderment, almost bewilderment that within, you know, we're, we're these like tiny insignificant creatures who clamber over these enormous, you know, impressive mountains of fire. And it's not just in volcanology, this happens in all sorts of other areas of science where the, the object or the subject of our, of our investigation is far physically grander than we are. I remain in sheer amazement that through our tiny minds, we're able to develop technology that can be applied, that can tell us anything, all, anything <laughs> at all. So I think no matter how well you've, you've planned, and planning is absolutely key, when you get there and it actually works, there's always a giddiness and there's always goosebumps of pinching yourself and thinking, it actually worked. <laughs> well, of course it worked. But, you know, so I suppose there's a kind of childlike joy in that. And there certainly was the first time I went. The, the first time I went to a volcano, it had actually erupted, Messiah Volcano in Nicaragua. So this was in 2001 with Clive Oppenheimer. Mm. When the volcano erupted, we, we actually missed it. We'd been at the summit. We went away. We heard about it. So we returned that evening to a site, which I'll never forget. There's a car park next to the summit crater. And when we got up to the car park, there was the smell of burning asphalt because the, the magma bombs that had come out had, 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 had melted the asphalt and there was, there was smoke everywhere because these, these bombs had also set fire to the grass surrounding the crater. I was met by a scene that I'll never forget. There was this great big black hole, the crater, surrounded by a ring of fire, the grass which was all on fire and smoldering because it had been ignited by all this, all this material. And then this really... Um, fell smell in in the air so that i've not told you about monitoring but i've told you about my first sort of experience of a volcano which was not passive very very <laughs> volcanic well that's that's a great i mean it's quite a picture you've just painted i mean let, let's let's sort of get into the technology a little bit i mean why why is it important that we sort of keep pushing the status quo with the technology for forecasting and, and what are the bits where your sort of background you were saying was you started off with i think using lasers to look at air pollution mm -hmm. in the atmosphere and so mm -hmm. i can see why you're into the gases side of it what are the sort of bits of tech that excite you in terms of either stuff on mm -hmm. the ground or i don't know even remote sensing stuff like satellites what is it that gets you excited i've always been a bit subversive I, um, volcanology from a uh, i suppose from a market point of view 
it's not a big enough commercial market for technologies to be developed mm. for that. And um, particularly given that many of the potential customers are in parts of the world where there isn't a lot of financial resource kicking around. So I've always, I've always been interested in being a bit disruptive. How can we adapt something which was really purposed for something else? And how can we use it in this context? But in particular, I've been interested in drone technology, which has advanced hugely over the last decade or so. I've also been interested in camera technology as well, in particular, repurposing the kind of sensors that are in our smartphones to see if we can use them for volcanic applications. Hmm. And I, I guess one of the similarities between all of the things that I've tried to do has been to try and hit a low price point. In other words, to try and take something which maybe a commercial supplier might be able to develop on a price point of just, say, out of thin air, 50 to 100,000 pounds, some, something like that. My question has always been, well, could we develop something that maybe costs you know, a fraction of that, maybe even just a few thousand pounds, something like that. And look, it's probably gonna, not going to work as well, but can we get it to work well enough? The point being so that people have access to this sort of technology in places that need it, presumably. That's right. And even yeah. from our point of view, in terms of field science, working on volcanoes is, is a mucky, dirty, smelly, ashy business. And, you know, things get dropped. You're not in a controlled lab environment. So, mm. you know, a, a trip can be a very expensive problematic trip if you're mm. carrying the 100 grand piece of kit <laughs> so we've just been talking sort of for looking forward a bit on technology and i mean in the past how have scientists predicted eruptions what's been the sort of equipment people have traditionally used going back so going like going way back in the day almost time to the you know almost back to you know thinking about when science was was almost you know gentlemen scholars who you know wander around wearing tweed and that sort of thing but the, the traditional approach would have been to physically collect gas samples from volcanic craters or or, or fumaroles we're literally talking like flasks here or like... That's right. That's right. Glassware. I mean, really, you know, the most exciting chemistry experiment you could... Field trip, you could <laughs> you could imagine. And and look, not knocking that, because if you want to know what's going on, that would be a very good way of finding out what's going on. But obviously, there are challenges associated with that in terms of obviously safety. And in addition to that, there's challenges in terms of just getting time series because someone needs to physically return each time you want a new data point, which is problematic. In terms of the gas, certainly within the last, I suppose, 30 to 40 years, people have increasingly turned to trying to use remote sensing, whereby instead of physically accessing the gas, there's some way of inferring the gas release uh, from afar, normally by just looking at how light from the sky passes through the volcanic gases mm -hmm. and the the gases absorb light in a particular colors or particular wavelengths of light and, and on, on the basis of that knowledge we can infer how much gas is coming out and maybe the concentrations the satellites aren't seeing the gases they're seeing the effect it has on light yeah so for example you know some of the satellites that we used that have been up now for decades to look at ozone concentrations can be can be repurposed to look at sulfur dioxide emissions mm. from volcanoes because both of those rely on looking at the ultraviolet absorption mm -hmm. caused mm -hmm. caused by both of those species. And those remote sensing measurements can be performed from space or they can be performed from ground. There's various different ways of doing this. But for example, with camera technology, you can develop technology which could look at the volcanoes and through the data processing, you would see the gases coming out of the top of the of, of, of the volcano. And it would look a little bit like a thermal camera image where you'd see, you know, 
a false color representation of the mm. escape of heat or the escape of gas in this this case. So tell me, Andrew, about sort of the, some of the technology you've developed and why it's a sort of improvement. Over the last, say, 15 years or so, I've been most interested in drones and what drones, what drones bring to the party is a, a mechanism of taking sensing equipment that actually needs to be within the volcanic gases and getting that equipment within the gases in a way that doesn't involve a human being being in the gases. And so the, there's an implicit safety attached to that. Um, there are other technological challenges that have to be overcome, namely, you know, finding a drone that can do this job you know, making sure that the drone isn't adversely affected by being in the gases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that would be the big obvious advantage of that kind of approach. We had our first punt at this in 2007. So this is long before you could go and just buy a drone off the shelf from, you know, DJI or, yeah. or a manufacturer like that, which had built in autopilot, which you could control from a smartphone or from a device. I could sense that something was going to happen in this area. So we, we if you like, tried to kind of uh, do something in this space on the basis of the technology that was available at that time. And of course, since then, we've seen drones proliferate absolutely massively within the consumer environment. And drones have been incredibly useful in surveying in, in, in a wide variety of scientific application areas. And what can we sort of quantitatively with like numbers or sort of qualitatively, can we sort of say what the sort of success rate has been for these drones? You know, what difference have they made to better forecasting eruptions? I think there's been some approaches which have made a really big difference. I don't think there is a silver bullet. I think I think they've helped. I think that they've provided a degree of uh, being able to access in certain contexts, which would be really problematic otherwise. But I, I, I just want to be I just want to be careful not to uh, just to recognize that there's you know, there's there's many different angles of attack mm. here, and it's 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 very important to emphasize that they all need to work um, in tandem, if you like. What challenges have you faced? I think always as an inventor, you always have, I suppose, the challenge of kind of following through on your instincts. So, you know, you can have an idea, and it might be that your idea is actually quite different from everybody else's idea, because you know, for for example, you know, let's just say you know, ultraviolet camera monitoring of volcanoes, which is something I've been involved in. The, you know, scientific instrument manufacturers do make units which would be, you know, perfectly useful in this application, albeit at, you know, quite a, quite a big price point or relatively large price point. We had a bit of an intuition that, well, you know, basically maybe we can get smartphone cameras to do the same thing. A bit of a madcap idea put together by a group of friends and colleagues in a pub. So that's great. So then the question is, how do you track from that to an actualized product that actually works in the wild? And as you know, and I've probably heard a hundred times before, that takes a lot of stickability and tenacity and trial and error to, to, you know, to get that across the line. And I think from my point of view, one of the great challenges I've always got is particularly if, for example, there's a PhD on the line, is how how long do you spend pushing something and when do you abandon ship and and when is it kind of foolish to continue and when you know and when is it brave <laughs> one man's bravery is another man's folly <laughs> and look i suppose i've been fortunate in that you know i have managed to push a few things through to the point where they've actually worked sorry did the did the smartphone for uv thing pan out yes it did yeah. so we and again it was this almost david and goliath story of we 
we knew that the architecture of modern day smartphones should allow good UV sensitivity. So in principle, based on the engineering specifications, we thought this should work. Um, so a PhD student in our team basically was given the job of, now we didn't actually start hacking apart iPhones because that's a thousand pounds ago. We worked instead with, I don't know if you're familiar with Raspberry Pi technology. Mm. So the cameras attached to them are basically smartphone cameras, except with the huge advantage that they cost 30 or 40 pounds. We basically bought up the UK stock of these of these cameras and, and then proceeded to uh, destructively test them until we'd figured out what we were doing. We're talking to the volcanologist Andrew McGonagall. Andrew's passion for volcanology has helped him to develop some pretty impressive inventions. The use of drones that Andrew developed in the early 2000s revolutionised the technology which volcanologists around the world use in the field. Improving on the 1970s-era correlation spectrometer, which is used to monitor sulfur dioxide levels, Andrew's compact commercial-grade spectrometers cost a mere £4,000 compared to the £60,000 price point of the original. Plus, weighing in at a fraction of the former technology at only 1kg, the 1970s tech, by contrast, weighed a considerable 20kg. I know which spectrometer I'd be packing if I were monitoring volcanoes. Deployed in 25 countries so far, the drone technology that Andrew has developed uses ultraviolet spectrometers to detect and image volcanic plumes by measuring background light absorbed by volcanic gases. Combined with other tests such as seismic exams of ground deformations near a volcano, Andrew is better able to determine when a volcano is likely to erupt. I asked him how much of an impact this technology has had worldwide. So I think, look, a lot of the, you know, technologies that I've been involved in previously in one way or another. And again, it's it's not me. It's not just me. There's been there's been many other people in this field. A number of them have 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 been spun out and are being used, you know, in all sorts all sorts of locations across the planet. And again, I wouldn't want to claim that, you know, any one of these diagnostic approaches is is the panacea. But, you know, I think this has played a role in terms of increasing the um the surveillance capacity of volcano observatories. Uh, in terms of the smartphone technology, that's being adapted now to a point where it can be deployed autonomously. So a number of units are now being autonomously deployed on volcanoes. That's a new sort of exciting development, and we'll see where that goes over the next couple of years. You've talked about access and cost a few times. It seems to be like recurring themes. How important is this tech to people who live in low or middle income countries? I think it is potentially helpful because of the price point. And I think the price point is is a differentiator. In terms of the most recent thing, which is which is the smartphone technology, we've got a number of those units now just going out as as inst- installations in, in a number of locations in South America. We'll see how that goes. And then hopefully thereafter, that can be proliferated further to different parts of the world. So, Andrew, you won the Rolex Award for Enterprise in 2008. For anyone listening who may not be aware, the Rolex Awards for Enterprise support individuals and innovative projects that improve life on the planet, expand knowledge, propose solutions to major challenges, or preserve our natural and cultural heritage for future generations. Spanning more than four decades since 1976, the 155 Rolex Award laureates include an extraordinary cohort of pioneers across a wide range of geographical locations and skills. The awards were designed to fill a void in corporate philanthropy by supporting exceptional individuals around the world who had no or little access to traditional funding. Laureates have included archaeologists, engineers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, geologists, 
physicists, sociologists, wildlife biologists, and more. Andrew, uh, I just wondered how important was it for your work to receive this award? Receiving the award from Rolex was, was incredibly important from the point of view of recognition. Often in science, you can hammer away at things forever and maybe an idea which you think is a fabulous one isn't recognized. So look, Rolex have been just wonderful in, in so many different ways. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. There's been the benefit of the award. And often in our work, we've tried to path find paths really for the first time. Sometimes it can be difficult to gain traction with the, with the funding council where you're where you really are trying to be off track completely. And Rolex have been marvelous about seeing some of those things and then getting behind them and enabling things to happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So for that, I'm I'm very grateful indeed. The other thing I'm very grateful for is that there's there's a huge network and having access to those people, sharing stories with them getting to know them, collaborating with them. I've worked with some of them on, mm. on, on different projects has been a, a, an absolute honor and, and privilege. One thing I've found amongst the Rolex people is they've seen success, they've seen failure. And I think that brings a real degree of reality mm. and humility. And, and it's meant that those people are just very, very pleasant to work with. It's been great to connect with them, to share stories with them, to share journeys with them. And to work with them as well. And I've, I've been very fortunate in being able to work with a number of them where we've been able to take, you know, two and two and make six and, and develop things that have gone in, in completely new and fascinating directions. That's really interesting, especially the point about sort of traditional public sources of funding, you know, from research councils and so on, not necessarily always mm. suiting the sort of yeah, off-piste kind of stuff. Mm. So I guess... This is the point where I sort of want to zoom out a little bit and go all big picture and look forwards a little, Andrew. Tell people a bit about what you're working towards next in your quest to sort of better understand and predict mm. volcanic activity. So the, the smartphone technology, that's being autonomously deployed at the moment, which is a reasonably new development. And so what the next step on that will be to observe the data and then go into listening mode to see what we can see in terms of how things may change in advance of future eruptions. So this is where we, you know, we go from, if you like, having sweated, making the thing work to sweating about thinking about what it's, what it's telling us. So it's changing tack a little bit. I think that's, that's very important in terms of next step. There's another project that we've been involved in, which is with NASA. NASA have been in touch as well regarding using some of the sensor technology for a potential application on the moon. So there's been there's been some work there working with them to try and engineer a unit which could potentially be used in terms of looking for hydroxyl within the lunar atmosphere, which is released from water in the lunar rocks. Therefore, it's very important going forward, potentially in terms of the Artemis missions. Now, I don't know if that unit will get launched, but it's been a, it's been a wonderful project in terms of, you know, we talked about going off piste. Well, this is really <laughs> off planet. The off piste. Yeah, there you go. Off planet. That's love right. It. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, and I mean, this is you know this sort of technology you're working on it. You know, the smartphones and the drones and the other you know more traditional sensors and stuff. I mean, this is sort of potentially life saving tech, right? You know, you said the I think when we started out talking, you said how the risk from volcanoes has come down. Do you think we're ever going to get to a point where we sort of abolish the risk that you know this sort of age-old threat poses i think one of the great challenges is 
I suppose in science, how do you ever know that you know, right? This that this that old this that old question. You know what you don't know. Yeah, we think we're we're good on that, but you don't know if you fully know. So I suppose we're we're, we're walking, and I have got philosophical. I'm sorry, it's your fault though. Um, <laughs> what we do with time is we become more and more aware of how individual volcanoes will behave, or the sorts of behaviors we might see in advance of eruptions. So we we can know that that will become something that we get better at with time as we get more data and more understanding of how to interpret those data. But can we ever? imagine that we'll be in a scenario where there won't be a kind of black swan event where a volcano does something completely out of the box. I suppose statistically it would become less likely as we know more, but could we ever philosophically know that we will know everything? I don't know. <laughs> You've got <laughs> me there though. I'll, I'll take it back to more concrete brass tacks then I guess. Yeah. Maybe like, is there like a volcano that you would single out as an example where we've, because of technology like yours and others in the field, we've massively decreased the risk. Yes. For example, some of the Italian volcanoes like Etna and, and Stromboli, there's been so much just spectacularly good work, mostly by Italian scientists who've developed technologies, who've deployed them there, who very conscientiously and assiduously uh, collected data and then monitored it, analyzed it eruption after eruption after eruption, and, and with great intelligence observed what's going on. Those have been absolute masterclass examples of what to do and how we could really come to a better understanding and thereby reduce risks. And I suppose thinking of volcanoes, but also more widely, mm. how hopeful are you for humanity's future and the environment around us? I'm interested in technologies in a, in a whole broad suite of senses in terms of addressing problems that exist in the world. Obviously, up until now in my career, I, fo I focus mostly in a volcanic sense. I'm a mixture of, of someone full of hope and someone who's a realist as well. But what gives me enormous hope, and this is a bit philosophical, is that we have agency here. We can do things. So in a sense, going back to the example of what we did with the smartphone, it was just three of us working on this. Who would have thought that the three of us, using our smarts, and a lot of tenacity and a lot of destroyed Raspberry Pi cameras could have cracked this problem in a way that would be really useful in volcanology. And that gives me hope. And I think another thing that gives me real hope is the fact that nowadays, and I think in a way for the first time ever, we've actually got accessible research technologies that everybody could use. We've got 3D printing We've got very low cost computing, for example, through Raspberry Pis. And so if you if you wanted to, and I know everybody's going to want to do this, if you wanted to, you could actually figure out how to invent something that could solve a problem and you could develop a little gadget that could do that. You know, there's always been the tinkerers in the garden shed. It's just that we've got more, more sophisticated technologies open to us. I think we're at a wonderful time when we can actually use these technologies to try and solve problems. And another thing I'm involved in right now is working in schools because schools actually have got tinkerers and they've got makers and they've got programmers. And so actually there's a lot of 14 and 15 year olds who actually could solve some of these problems. And that gives me huge hope. So would I be fair in summarizing that it's ingenuity and the sort of wider talent pool that we almost have now, the fact that like 8 billion people can get involved rather than 1 billion and the next generation, is that a fair way of summarizing it? I, th I think so. And I think, you know, 
humans are a mixed bag, right? You know, there's great things and there's not so great things. But one facet to human beings is we, we can't help ourselves but solve problems. <laughs> it's almost like it's a fundamental. Um, I, just before we got on the call, I was just thinking about a, a, someone called Neville Maskelyne, who I don't know, you may or may not have heard of, but he was, he was a scientist. And he, he figured out a way in the, the 19th century, I think it was, but he figured out a way of being able to weigh the earth by just getting some pendulums on the side of a mountain in Scotland called Shehalian that I've climbed many times. And he looked at just the slight deflection of the angle of the pendulum on each side of the mountain. And, and in doing that, he was able to figure out, you know, on the basis of very rudimentary technology, how heavy the earth is. <laughs> you know, it's incredible. Like basically a man in breeches with, you know, it'd been a bit more sophisticated than this, but two clamps, two strings and two balls figured out how heavy the earth is and he got it pretty much exactly right i mean it's absolutely incredible so that gives me hope so what i'm wondering now is well you know what about these kids you know who can 3d print and who can do some python programming with raspberry pis i think they can develop incredible things going forwards you've been listening to planet hope with me, Adam Vaughan, and my guest, volcanologist Andrew McGonagall. This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. The series producer is Anya Pierce, the production coordinator is Oliver Adamson, and the production assistant is Shana Johnson. You can listen to us for free on The Times radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>